0: Our first reading is taken from Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. For he has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The word of the Lord. Thanks be
1: to God. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, "'Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery.'" Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to him, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let them who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
2: As we remain standing, please pray with me. Father, we ask for your power to be people of mercy in such a brutal and cruel world that we're in for we ourselves have received mercy through your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen please be seated now our gospel story is a very famous story of Jesus that epitomized his mercy and his wisdom in the face of hostility now Jesus in this story resembled the Jewish figures like that of king solomon or even the prophet Daniel, or even the Hebrew maiden Susanna in the apocryphal portion of the book of Daniel, who was, she was falsely accused of adultery by two corrupt elders when she had refused their advances. But our gospel reading, in fact, is a contested portion in John. It was not well attested in the majority of the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts of the gospel. None of the early church fathers, none of the Eastern fathers mentioned this story in their commentaries. Most scholars today don't even consider the story to be original to John. And so in most of our Bible translations, in fact, this story is either omitted or it's marked out with footnotes. Now, despite our reading's dubious place in the scriptural canon, it does not necessarily make its narrative account inauthentic or untrue. Even while most scholarship, yes, are doubtful of this story's original place in John, they believe the story bears marks of historical authenticity. See, some extra biblical sources suggest the story was an interpolation of eyewitness accounts of Jesus that bear similar features. The story itself describes something that would have happened to Jesus, and its depiction of Jesus is something that would fall within the spectrum of his own character. So, in light of all that, what are are we to do with this story that was just read for us? Does this textual issue change how we approach the story and even the whole Bible itself? Now, whether we get rid of this story or include it in the gospel, it doesn't really impact any of the core of our Christian beliefs. See, to include the story would add contours to Jesus. But to exclude the story won't impact what we in the whole church throughout the ages, believes about the gospel. So with that aside and with that in mind, that we can still venture into the story to glean from it at least two lessons. There are at least two lessons in this story. A warning against hypocrisy and an invitation towards mercy. A warning against hypocrisy and an invitation towards mercy. So let's turn now, if you have your Bibles, to our gospel reading. In verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, that was east of the holy city. We know that that was the usual place that he and his disciples would hang out when they're in town. The next morning, Jesus went up again to Jerusalem into the temple courts to teach the masses. These were people, probably Jewish pilgrims, who remained in the city after just celebrating the Feast of Booths. Now, how the story unfolds thereafter, it can be triggering to some of us because it depicts a scene when the vulner- of a vulnerable person of society being publicly shamed, being mistreated, disrespected, and objectified. But the story, no matter how disturbing and disconcerting to us, it serves to highlight deeper lessons of divine grace that we will see in Jesus against the bleak backdrop of human depravity. So again, in the story, Jesus is teaching the crowds in the temple courts, the religious leaders come, they interrupt them. They dragged with him, with them the woman whom they alleged had been caught in the act of adultery. Now whether she was married or engaged to be married, we don't know. The curious thing was that no man was brought in along with her. So then they forced the woman to stand in the middle of the crowd, put on display to be humiliated, already presuming for everyone her guilt without there being any proper investigation. Then the religious leaders immediately invoked the law of Moses to mete out stoning for the capital crime in the Jewish religion for adultery. But despite having already concluded on the woman's guilt, the religious leaders brought her to Jesus, curiously enough, for his verdict—not because they wanted truly a second opinion from him, but so that they could trap him. We learn this in verse six. Jesus John let us know the real motive of the leaders. They couldn't care less about the law of Moses. They were cunning to wield the law as a weapon to cut Jesus from underneath. But equally as wretched was their unblinking exploitation of the woman who was dragged along as collateral, as a victim of being objectified not sexually but as a tool, a leverage for their political and religious power that they're exerting over Jesus Christ who they find to be a threat to their own monopoly now whether or not she was guilty as charged that's besides the point see the religious leaders were not concerned about that at all so here again just this beginning of the story on repeat throughout history the helpless are plucked up by their heads and their throats like pawns and are played by the powerful in their schemes and games against one another And this was committed by the religious leaders of the institutions that bear the name of Yahweh, the Lord God, full of grace, full of compassion, slow to anger, abounding with steadfast love. To our own shame, we are still witnessing contemporary parallels even in the church today. So this comes as a warning, even today, even right now, against hypocrisy particularly among the right-leaning conservative ranks of Western Christendom in their off caricatured penchant to police sex in the human body, specifically the female body, we are caught in the whirlwind that the purity culture of the early 2000s had reaped when they had sown the wind of the strict, shame-inducing doctrines in spite of sincere good intentions." the cascade of sexual scandals now cover-ups being exhumed victims finally giving voice to their trauma from prominent church leaders megachurch pastors these are these have come as divine reckoning of sorts in the church it is a kind of judgment from God today to expose the violence and the gangrene among our members to humble us from our doctrinal conceit to prune the branches that have gone limp and are producing the fruits of Satan. To warn us here and now today who are watching online and to us who are present to be on guard, to watch out for the yeast, the leaven of religious hypocrisy. A little yeast will bloat the whole batch. This is a warning against hypocrisy. So the religious leaders have set the trap. Now everyone turned to look at Jesus. What are you going to say? The dilemma before Jesus was twofold. On the one hand, if Jesus let the woman go, he would discredit his own claim as the Jewish Messiah, as the one who had passed over the law of Moses. On the other hand, if Jesus condemned the woman, he would have yielded to mob rule, to the mob morality, rendered a culturally unpalatable sentence, while going against the grain of his own ministry of compassion towards the sinners and the outcasts of society. He would have also incurred some form of Roman intervention because the empire reserved the exclusive right to execute people within their colonies. It was quite the trap that the leaders have set for Jesus. So how did Jesus respond? In verse 6, he first bent down to write with his finger on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. We don't know why he did this. Some commentators interpret this as Jesus embodying the finger of God that Moses saw to have inscribed the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets he was carrying. But we don't know exactly why Jesus did this or what he wrote. If anything, this reads more like an eyewitness account of what actually happened, what the person saw. If anything, Jesus appeared to be delaying. So the leaders kept prodding him for a response, and then in verse 7, Jesus stands up and says, Let them who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. After saying this, Jesus bent down again and wrote on the ground. There are are two things that Jesus is saying here. First, he is affirming the law of Moses. He invited the crowd, in fact, to execute the woman. Throw a stone at her. Let them. Let them throw a stone at her. But secondly, he qualified that invitation with the condition that the sentence, in fact, be carried out judicially, rightfully. Now, he wasn't suggesting here that we could never pass judgment unless you are morally or ethically pristine yourself. He's not saying that. Rather, Jesus is unmasking the injustice of this mockery of a trial for everyone involved. Everyone is a party to this. First, Jesus unmasked the hypocrisy of the leaders, I mean, since they were the ones who brought the woman, they stood as presumed witnesses to the crime. The law of Moses prescribed the direct witnesses to be the ones to initiate the stoning. And Jesus knew that the religious leaders could not in good conscience fulfill this duty because they had ulterior motives. See, again, their desire was not for the law. Their desire was not for justice. It was just to make Jesus out to be a fool. Now, as a side thing here, isn't this a popular approach to the mob morality today of social media? Right, We're, We're often lured to smash up our keyboards, to make a snide comment, to attack someone's character. We share demeaning and divisive memes just so we can make our opponents look like idiots. Or even make them out to be very terrible and evil people. We're lured to do that often. Let them who have infinite knowledge and have gained every perspective of the matter cast their final judgment on the comment section. Now back to the story. Not, not, Not only did Jesus unmask the hypocrisy of the leaders, he also unmasked the double standard of society. This is the second unmasking. Now if the people should have picked up stones to kill the woman, they would have been party to an improper sentencing See, without true witnesses, and more importantly, without the male partner, there was no just sentencing. Jesus unmasked the male chauvinism of his society when the woman often carried the inequitable burden of social religious stigma, whenever they're accused of sexual immorality, whether or not they have been, ultimately... When Jesus said, let them who is without sin cast the stone, Jesus is upholding the ideal. That true judgment is only possible within the community whose every member is pursuing what's fair, what's just, what's right, especially for those who cannot fulfill the demands and requirements of the law. But not just for the sake of the social good, but for the the manifestation of God's goodness and justice in the community, in the extension of this goodness and this justice beyond the community. In our first reading that Brielle read for us, the word of God came through the prophet Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That word came to reprimand his own people, who had become experts in legal and ritual loopholes. They said, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. It's so much easier to offer animal sacrifices than it is to restore our own debt to others. Oh, it's so much easier to confess sin than it is to change my own behavior. But God called his people out. That's because what they're doing is legal and provisional in the law. That doesn't mean that it's good. God called his people instead into a true life of the law, a life of mercy, not of legal adherence. Now this is finally the lesson, the second lesson, an invitation towards mercy, an invitation towards a life of mercy. And such as it was when Jesus invited the crowd to judge for themselves, judge for yourselves, if you were in fact pursuing a life of mercy and justice, not just for yourself, But for your neighbors, in fact, for this neighbor of yours, this woman in your midst, who cannot fend for herself. So then in verse 9, people began to walk away, beginning with the older people. See, this was the elderly people's shining moment, for even so brief an instant, when they exercised an ounce of humility, an ounce of wisdom, even as they walked away in shame. Soon afterwards, only Jesus and the woman were left alone in the temple courts. And in verse 10, Jesus attends to the woman. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? See, until this moment in the story, the woman was merely a prop, an object, a tool used and abused by the people in power who were supposed to uphold and protect her. And here, for the first time in this story, she was addressed as a person by Jesus, dignifying her with the question, out of his care for her, has no one condemned you? How are you doing? What's happening here? Has no one condemned you? Where are your, your accusers? She said, no one, Lord, no one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Among those in the crowd that day, Jesus was the only one who had the right, the authority, the moral perfection to have picked up a stone to throw at her. He had every right, but he did not do that. Jesus desired mercy, so he pursued it for this woman. But mercy always comes at a cost. The cost is always borne by the one who would give it, who would show it. Out of his desire for mercy, Jesus would provide the sacrifice. He would later bear the cost when he gave himself as the sacrifice on the cross for the mercy given to this woman, for the mercy to be given to all the world, to everyone who would trust in that sacrifice on the cross. Neither do I condemn you, but go, sin no more. Sin no more. Jesus' final remarks implied that the woman was indeed guilty as charged. She was guilty. But he forgives her. Releases her. lets her go to a new kind of freedom. But not the kind of freedom to do whatever she wants or to go back to what she used to do. She was liberated for the life of mercy, of justice, of moral purity and excellence. Not that she could show herself to be holy, but... It is for the love of neighbor and community. With one arm, Jesus extends her absolute forgiveness at the cost of his own life, ultimately. And with the other arm, Jesus extends her the transformation of life, the change of her being, the freedom to do good. And this is, in fact, what we trust to see from Jesus. Two arms extended to each one of us, to me, whenever we confess our sins. In the confession, we're always asking Jesus, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Confession of sin is one small way we accept this invitation towards mercy, both as a release from sin and the freedom to live mercifully. In this story, the words of John, again, they're accomplished. See, we read that in chapter 1. John wrote that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace for the forgiveness of sins, truth for the justice and purity of God. And we have beheld his glory. We beheld this fullness of grace and truth first in the story of the Samaritan woman, remember? In chapter 4, how Jesus revealed himself to her despite her being pushed aside by society. We see this fullness again with this woman caught in adultery. How Jesus forgave her. And how Jesus liberated her, would we see this fullness even for ourselves today, we who have received God's mercy in Jesus? Neither do I condemn you, but go, sin no more," says Jesus. Let's pray. Father, protect us from the leaven of hypocrisy, from the desire to lure and trap others to make ourselves look better than we are and lead us towards a life of mercy, to always show mercy as we have been shown mercy. For it is for freedom that Christ has liberated us, not for selfish ambition, for pleasing ourselves, but freedom to work justice, to do good, to desire mercy, to the end that all would know We worship a God who is gracious and compassionate, who is slow to anger, who is so full and abounding with steadfast love for us and for the whole world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.